0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. One of the biggest uh, questions that uh, we perhaps uh, ask uh, ourselves or pray or ask God, if you will, uh, certainly as a pastor, one of the questions that oftentimes is asked as a, as a pastor is the question of, what is the will of God for my life? Anybody ever asked that question? God, what is your will? What is your will for my life? Well, today is your day, because I'm going to tell you what the will of God is for your life. And that's the title of today's message we are going to look at in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, The Will of God for Your Life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to look at uh, three verses, uh, very short, but as they are in much of the Word of God, pregnant with great truth from God. These short verses of God's Word that as we continue in the, I believe, the 15th week in our series on 1 Thessalonians, and if you want to go back and you can listen to those online and go back and listen to those and and, uh, see where we have gone, but we are coming down into the Paul, the Apostle Paul is circling the runway, if you will, he's landing the plane and uh, he is uh, giving some final words of encouragement and exhortation to to the hearers of this young church. But look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16 through 18. Verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There it is, there it is, the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? Today is your day, hit the jackpot, you know the will of God for your life. You know, it's interesting that as Paul uh, gives these three commands, and they are commands, they're not suggestions, they're three commands that some have suggested, suggested that they're shaped by the structure of the, the, the psalms, or the psalter, if you will, in the structure of the way the worship structure was, and the psalms that were three parts of joy, prayer, joy, or celebration prayer, or thanksgiving, and Paul gives these three statements where he uses words like always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think that's kind of impossible, because who rejoices always? Who uh, prays without ceasing, without stopping? Who is thankful in all circumstances? I mean, that's a tall order, kind of impossible. It would be easier if Paul said, I want you to rejoice a lot. Okay, I can do that. I want you to pray as much as you can, and I want you to try to be thankful. Now, that would be easy. I think I could kind of go for that, but... These seemed uh, always and without ceasing and in everything. But it's interesting that Paul, just kind of in rapid fire, makes these three statements. He doesn't even give us room to breathe or say how to do those things, even though the Word of God gives us other places that he helps explains them uh, where Scripture elaborates. But what is the will of God for my life? And Paul's idea here. Uh, Just to kind of give a a, a big picture, it's really simple. God commands us, listen, God commands us as believers, because he's writing to believers, he's writing to Christians, God commands us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks and everything. It's not really complicated, all right? You say, well, why don't we go home early? Well, I can't let you do that, all right? It's not that, not that easy. We're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. And notice that that last phrase up there, and this is key. Remember Paul's audience of who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. Non-Christians, unbelievers can't do these things. Because the key is the latter part of verse 18. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That little word in, you ought to circle that in your Bibles or highlight it on your phone or tablet, whatever you're, however you're using it. Because that's the key because these things are only possible as you are in Christ Jesus. Alright? It's not just us striving to do it. It's as we are in Christ, this is the will of God. And so these impossible commands... Uh, for I say just on a human level, but they're really impossible for a unbeliever because you have to be born again. You must be in Christ. You must be regenerated, if you will. You must be born again, saved, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a believer. You're actively involved in pursuing the Christ-filled life. That is That is your motivation of your heart and your life. You're a Christian, not just because you were catechized or baptized as an infant or whatever the situation. No, you are an active, engaged follower of Jesus Christ. Imperfect, yes, but we serve a perfect Savior in Jesus. And so he's writing to believers on what is the will of God for our life. And as a Christian, and the reason... I kind of underscore this for believers is because this is part of what the Bible calls sanctification. This is not justification. Justification is how an individual is made right before God. We are passive in that. We are not participating in that, okay? But in sanctification, because of being in Christ, filled with the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, we are participants in the sanctification. What is that? That is the ongoing work and activity of us being conformed and molded and shaped into Christ Jesus in our life and character. And so the things that are brought out today are part of being conformed to be like Christ. So if we're to be like Christ was... Jesus rejoicing, was he a rejoiceful person? Yeah. Uh, Was he a person that prayed? Yes. Was he always thankful? Yes. And so we're going to be conformed like Jesus. Here are three important qualities that every believer should pursue. And so we're going to look at these, break these down into three statements here. And Number one is verse 16, and that is, the believer's disposition. The believer's disposition. It says God commands us to rejoice always. Rejoice always. What does that command mean? And I'm going to kind of state what, they, what, it, what it means, explain it, and then give some practical uh, thoughts of how to, how do we do this, all right? So what does this command mean? Does rejoicing Always, I mean, it looks kind of odd up there, doesn't it? Just kind of there, all by itself. You know, interestingly, how many of you know that the uh, shortest um, uh, verse in the Bible in the English Bible is what? All right, John eleven thirty-five. But in the Greek, which is you know, the New Testament was written in Greek in the original language in the original documents, the shortest verse in the Greek is this verse, rejoice always. And uh, a short statement, but a very powerful statement. And so what does it mean to be always rejoicing? Uh, Have you ever been walking down the street and you see somebody just walking down the street and they just got a big old smile? Now, I know we should be like, hey, that's really great, but I think it's kind of weird, all right? That's just me. Like, you know, what's going on? They're just walking down, nobody, I mean, what are you smiling, you know? You're like, I know, that's just, that's just me, I'm sorry. But, but does that mean we're just to kind of have this glazy-eyed smile, you know, that just looks kind of phony and act like everything is just great and wonderful? Is that what we're being called to? Uh, does that mean that you are sinning if you feel sad, if you're depressed, if you're upset or grieved, that somehow that is sinful? If rejoicing, listen, if rejoicing always means never... Being upbeat, um, or, or means always being upbeat and, and giddy and happy and never feeling sadness. Well, we kind of have a problem because there were times in Jesus' life and Paul's life that they weren't always in that kind of happiness, if that's how we're defining rejoicing. In fact, you remember Jesus even prayed in Hebrews 5, 7. It, it says that he prayed with a loud crying and tears at the cross. Uh, Paul said, described himself as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing in 2 Corinthians 6, 10. Uh, there were times in which Paul uh, and Jesus speak, speaks about when he looked at Jerusalem and, and, and wept for Jerusalem uh, and, was, and was sorrowful because he looked out over the people that God had sent him, that he was among his brethren, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Paul said in Romans 12, 15, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we know that rejoicing isn't just some kind of phony disposition. Uh, It doesn't mean denying your feelings, put on a happy face and never feel sad. So what does it mean? Remember, again, the context of who he's writing to. He's writing to young believers, and we've talked about this in other settings, that one of the things that these young believers in the city of Thessalonica, which uh, is still today in Greece, is called Thessaloniki, but this city, this region in Greece, he was writing. And one of the things that we know is that they were facing, like a lot of the other churches, facing hardship and persecution. Uh, they were facing a lot of turmoil, and yet Paul says he he didn't just say buck up. He says rejoice always. In fact, if you we won't look at it, but if you look at the verse right above that, he he tells them don't take revenge on those who do evil against you. And then the very next verse he says rejoice always. Like Paul, who what are you talking about here? Uh, maybe Paul had taught them the words of Jesus when Jesus said. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Remember what James says in James 1? He says what? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Paul even said, to show you again, to underline that your setting as a believer isn't what determines this rejoicing. One of the most joyful letters that Paul wrote that sometimes we call the letter of joy is the book of Philippians. And you know where Paul was when he wrote Philippians. He was in jail, I don't know about you, but that's not a real joyful place to be in. And yet, he says, even, even he says, if you read, I was reading this morning in chapter 2, he says in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, to paraphrase, he said, even if I'm called upon to give my life. Remember, he says, my life, you know, if it's poured out like an offering. He said, even if I give my life for the sake of the gospel, he says, I will rejoice. What is that? I mean, that didn't even that, that's just beyond if we are just looking for the surfacey every day is a Friday mentality. Hello? Right? I mean, we are, we've got to tap in and say, what, what does this mean? When we go through, the challenge of Scripture is that when we go through various trials or people mistreat us because of our faith, listen, we have a choice to make as Christians. Hear what I'm saying? We have a choice. We can either focus on the people, the trials, the situation, and fall into self-pity. Woe is me. I've got it so bad. Life is so terrible, and I'm not minimizing the effects of things that happen. Or we can make the choice To do what Colossians 3 says, to set my mind on things above and not on things of the earth. I have a choice. I have a choice to say, and we talk about this rejoicing. Let me put it this way. Rejoicing always is a conscious attitude of godly contentment, godly hope, and godly joy that comes From intentionally and deliberately focusing on Christ and the eternal treasures that we have received freely from Him. It is a change in our focus. It is a change in our disposition. This is the believer's disposition to rejoice always. Let me show you an example of this. Look in your Bibles, turn to your Bibles scan over in your Bibles, swipe over in your Bibles, to Psalm 5, Psalm 5, Psalm 5. Give an example of this. Psalm Psalm 5. The psalm begins, as you look at it, the first few verses there, with the psalmist crying out, to the Lord for help in the midst of what were some type of life-threatening situations or ordeals that he was facing. And yet, by the end of the psalm, he's praising and thanking God. It begins by David mentioning, look at verses 1 and 2, mentioning his groaning and his cry for help. He says in verse 1, "'Give ear to my words, O Lord.'" Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Why is he groaning? Well, if you know anything about David's life, he has enemies that want to kill him. He has so-called friends that become enemies. And as the psalm unfolds, we won't read it all, but this groaning because of these enemies, uh, and yet in verse 7, he notes about meditating on God's abundant loving kindness. Do you see the pivot? And then notice how he concludes. Notice where he started, but notice where he wraps up. Verse 7 is the hinge. Verse 11, he says, But, if you were, remember when we were in our, Saturday, our Sunday seminar, Steve Lawson talked about the buts of Scripture. But, Let all who take refuge in you do what? Rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Do you see? Do you see the pivot? Do you see just in that little example and there's, Many multiple examples of, again, when we take our eyes off of all the mess. And again, I'm not minimizing that some of you are facing and have face and are in the middle of some real stuff, real hardship. But where's your focus? What is your disposition? Paul says, try, but he says, rejoice always that phrase back in 1st uh, Thessalonians 5:16 literally reads at all times being rejoicing at all times being rejoicing it is a rejoicing listen that is again rooted anchored in the settled deep confidence of God's sovereign love it is God's it is our confidence And our settledness in the understanding that God is providentially, sovereignly working all things together for my good and his glory. Therefore, as Paul would write in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Jesus. And he starts naming all those things off. All the crises, famine, sword, nakedness, peril, you know, he just names them all. He said, in all of these, what? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself, always the pre- premier example that even as he looked Anticipating the cross, Hebrews 12.2 tells us in that verse 1 about running the race. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, or the founder and perfecter, the ESV says, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So, rejoice always is not... Dependent on your circumstances. But if you're tethered constantly by your feelings, then you're going to be like that ship that's tossed about by every wave of emotion. But even in this, even in this, the anchor holds still, as the old gospel song. So how do we do this? How do we practically do this? Let me give you just some practical thoughts here. Practical things. First, daily focus on the riches that God has given to you in Christ. Do you understand who you are in Christ? Do you understand the, your standing as a redeemed man or woman in the presence of God, who you are in Christ? I mean, even just take Ephesians, the first chapter, and slowly read that and be reminded that Ephesians 1 3 through 14 reminds us that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. Every need, everything that we would want or desire is already presently ours in Christ Jesus. That God shows us in Him before the foundation of the world. That in love He predestined me and you to adoption as His child. He freely has bestowed upon us His grace in Christ Jesus. In Him we have redemption and the forgiveness of all sins, lavished bountifully because of His grace. He has made known to us the mystery of His will. These are all in Ephesians 1. He has given to us an inheritance and has sealed it by the Holy Spirit as a promise. And so you have to say, what is my problem? What is my problem? If all these things are true, what is my issue? Secondly, how do we develop a habit of rejoicing is <coughs> walk in the spirit and not in the flesh? That's what Paul says in Galatians 5:20 in Galatians five, but he says that in the fruit of the spirit, remember the one of the, a fruit of the spirit the Bible talks about. Fruit of the Spirit. Now, I know that you think there's some fruity Christians, but we're not talking about that. But he's saying that fruit is analogous to evidence of the Spirit's working in our life. It makes the analogy of fruit growing on a tree. To walk in the Spirit and for the evidences of the Spirit to be taking shape in and through our life means that I am daily yielding to Christ I'm daily relying on Christ. I'm daily trusting in Christ. My disposition isn't rejoicing in circumstance, but my disposition is rejoicing in who Jesus is and who I am in Him. Colossians 3.3 says that my life is hidden with Christ in God. And, you know, it takes time to produce fruit, it takes time. If, you, if you've ever grown, I remember as a little kid, I was maybe four, I don't even know if I was five, but my dad was so proud, he had planted a, I think it was a peach tree or something like that. I didn't let it live long enough to remember. Um, but I remember the first little piece of what looked like fruit. One, just one. And my dad, I remember. I just remember he was really excited. Do you think, this little brat could let that little piece of fruit just hang there without picking that. So what did I do? I went and pulled that piece of fruit, and I, I, and it, guess what? It wasn't, you know, what do you think that was? that was? It was kind of sour. I mean, it wasn't good. It wasn't ripe. See, that's what happens in our life, is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is that which is grown over time. It's developed over time. It's the evidences of the Spirit of God working in and through our life. And here's a third suggestion of rejoicing always, and it's not real profound, but in a way it is. And the third is sing. Sing. Worship. How do you personally engage when you take time before the Lord? Let me tell you something. Engage in what God has given to you is a new song. And I say, take a hymn book. One of my favorite act, devotional resources is a hymn book. And you can go online and do this. Again, what, but you certainly want it to be grounded in the Word of God, but, but take words and sing them before the Lord. It may be best for everybody if you do it privately in the cab of your car. <laughs> they will rejoice or in your shower where we all sound you know, tremendous and great. But... But sing to the Lord. You know, the, if you just take the Psalms and do a word search at the word sing or singing, it's amazing about how many times we are exhorted to sing, to lift our voices. One example, Psalm 13:6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully to me. Has God dealt bountifully to you? Can you sing about that? And here's a little tip. Sing in church. This is an active engagement, singing. Sing in church. Well, I don't know the words. Guess what? They're on the wall. You can, we got a new thing. You can read them now, right? Oh, you can sing. You know what it means? You got to activate and lift your voice and sing. God has given us a voice to sing. And I believe that's a wonderful way. Take the Psalms. Look up what singing the Psalms is all about. You know the Bible has a built-in songbook and it's the Psalms. Use it, why? To set my mind. What are we talking about? We're talking about rejoicing always. What are we saying? I, I cannot, you cannot engage in all of the consumption of media and stuff 24 hours a day, and think for coming in here for an hour and a half is going to counteract all that during the week. And you wonder why your mind is so confused and so torn. Why you know so little about the Bible. You know why we put a menu before you of opportunities in the church? Because we want you to be grounded in the Word of God, growing in Christ, growing in sanctification. Why? So that your heart will be a disposition of rejoicing. In the good things of God. But if you don't participate. You don't eat. You don't drink. There's a second. Aspect. In verse 17. Not just the believer's disposition. Rejoice always. But secondly is the believer's dependency. Verse 17. God commands us to pray. Without Ceasing. Does this mean that you are to quit your jobs and engage in 24 7 prayer? Well, that's not accurate because Paul and Jesus did not do that. It's interesting, the word, the origin of the word, they call it etymology, the growth of how a word gets to be a word in the Greek. The word that is translated without ceasing, the word in the Greek was used. Of a hacking cough now let me explain: a person with a bad or hacking cough doesn't necessarily cough continuously, but they cough and they cough. cough and they cough often and repeatedly. It was also used of military attacks. It wasn't just a complete without, it was, it was spoken of as an army would attack a city, draw back, attack again, do it over and over. But there, the emphasis was, was there was a continual and there was a pers- persistence in the attack. Pray without ceasing means that our prayers should be frequent and persistent. You with me? Frequent and persistent. Uh, Jesus talked about the uh, uh, the widow um, in Luke 18, who kept bothering the unjust judge in that story. She kept coming back, kept repeating, coming back, until she got what she was asking for. You know, I'm sure as Jesus, or as Paul was a great teacher, again, his primary example is always Christ. Jesus himself in his life was persistent and frequent in his prayer. Uh, You just begin by looking in the Gospels, and you see that Jesus, there's multiple examples of Jesus' life of going away to a secluded place to pray. He was a person who prayed uh, during the time uh, when he was on the Mount of Olives to pray. He prayed all night in Luke 21. Uh, now, there certainly was an intensity of his prayers that uh, certainly you know, are, is different than believers that we know little or nothing about. But one of the moments where we see this intensity was when Jesus prayed uh, in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. It won't be on the screen, just listen from Luke twenty-two forty-one, 41. And Jesus withdrew from them, from the other disciples, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. And being in agony, he was praying very frequently And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. In Matthew's version of that, Matthew records that Jesus' prayer in the garden was a prolonged experience in which he asked and pleaded with the Father three times that if it be thy will, take this cup from me. But you know what Jesus said, and thank God that he said not my will, but what? thine be done. I want you just to be reminded that if Jesus prayed with that frequency, that intensity, that consistency. How much more? If the very Son of God is our example, <coughs> how much more do we need to pray without ceasing? So how do we do that? Again, trying to give you some practical thoughts. Here's some, practical, here's some practical things of how to do that. Again, it goes back to recognizing we said the dependency, the believer's dependency, because when you pray, you're acknowledging your dependency on the Holy Spirit, your dependency on God. So uh, recognize that you are dependent. When you pray, you're acknowledging, God, I cannot do this. God, I am incapable of doing this. I need your help. In fact, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, that the Spirit helps us in Romans 8. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For when we do not know how to pray, it is the, as we ought. It was the Spirit that helps us, that intercedes for us and searches our heart. The Holy Spirit is called the helper, the uh, the one who comes alongside. Also, and I I think I just uh, stumbled on this example in Nehemiah 2. Look in your Bibles. I want you to see this in Nehemiah 2. It's just a little example of something. But it illustrates another way you can pray without ceasing. So find the book of Psalms. Go left. You'll come on Job. You'll come to Esther, and you'll hit Nehemiah. So just find the Psalms in your Bible, Go left, Job Street, Esther Avenue, and then you'll hit Nehemiah, all right? And it's not unspiritual to use your table of contents, all right? I have been known to do it very secretly. I don't think it looks good for a pastor to be using the table of contents, but I every once in a while have to cheat and find that book of Joel or Habakkuk every once in a while. Like, did they move that thing? Did they move it back here in the map somewhere? It's not in my Bible, All right, Nehemiah 2, I want you to see this, this little example. And it's a scene where Nehemiah, you know that Israel at this time is in exile, conquered. And it's a scene of Nehemiah, the cupbearer, kind of a servant, waiter if you will in our language, to a pagan king by the name of Artaxerxes, and as Nehemiah in chapter 2, as he comes into the king's presence, his demeanor is sad. And this was, uh, we know from history, historians, that this was a, could be a very serious offense because you did not want to cause any, um, anything to disrupt the king's mood. All right, so you came in happy and cheerful. You didn't come in sad or depressed, or it wasn't about you, and that could that could lead to some severe consequences. All right, so it would have been a serious offense, and Nehemiah even acknowledges there it was fearful, but he explained to the king that he was sad because he received news back at the home city in Jerusalem where some exiles had returned and were commissioned to begin rebuilding the wall because Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so he was sad because of the progress that they were not making, and he was saddened, and he, he expressed that uh, to the king. But here's what I want you to look at. The king asked what Nehemiah would request, and in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, it, it, says, it says that Nehemiah says, So I pray to the God of heaven... I said to the king. Now, here's what I want you to notice. How do you pray without ceasing? Sometimes it just means that throughout our day, we are sending and speaking short prayers to God in all circumstances. It didn't say, Mr. King, can I have 30 minutes? I need to go pray about this before I answer you. It just says, he prayed and then he spoke. Lord, help me and then he spoke and told the king, now that may not be profound to you, but it was profound to me. As an example to say, sometimes when you are in a situation that before you speak, say, God, help me with my words. When somebody has a need and says, will you pray for me, don't just do what sometimes we, if we are honest, we do. We say absolutely, and we forgot it two minutes later, and we never remembered again. Stop and say Let me pray right now for you. Let me pray right now. Or as I leave, Lord Jesus, help that person find this need or help this person with their health, whatever it is. You see... Praying without ceasing doesn't mean your world comes to a complete halt. Sometimes it means that in the midst of life, in the midst of a job, when your boss is raking you over the coals, when something is going wrong and the customer is irate, you know what you're doing under the silence of your own breath? You're praying and saying, Lord, give me strength. Help me. Give me understanding. Praying without ceasing, it means that our our entire life and, and um an attitude should be that, that we are God conscious. See, that's the issue. We're, we don't live enough God consciousness throughout the day to feel like we can talk to God instead of getting in some formal prayer line. You don't have to do that. You can pray 24-7. You can pray all the time. Some of you can be praying for me now, praying for me to quit preaching. That's not a prayer God likes, by the way. But I hope you do pray for me. Another way is not just short prayers in the midst of our day. And I love that example in Nehemiah. Is spend time, set time, some time with the Lord in praying. You don't have to... Spend long blocks of time, but be. what does it say? What are we saying? Be persistent, be consistent, be fervent, be continuous. Read books on prayer. Read good books on prayer. Read some some great writers on prayer. Anything by E.M. Bounds. E-M. Bounds. B-O-U-N-D-S. Andrew Murray. These are very warm, heart-filled writers that help us to... Kindle some fire. A new book that I read in the past couple of years that is very good is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Invest in things that are going to help you grow in the one area that many of us are the weakest in, and that's prayer. Pray without ceasing. But there's a third command. Not just the believer's disposition to rejoice always. The believer's dependence to pray without ceasing. But thirdly is the believer's decision. Verse 18. God commands us to give thanks in everything. The command means that in every situation we are To give thanks to our sovereign and good God and Savior. Now let me make sure we understand what we're not saying here. Giving thanks in every situation does not mean that we must be happy with every situation or resign to accept matters kind of in a Calvinism on steroids fatalism. That just whatever... Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and there's nothing I have to do to be engaged with it. That's not God calls us and gives us the means to pray. He says ask, right? I think that's in our Bible. Is that that in your Bible somewhere? Things about asking, asking what you will in my name, asking what I can endorse. It doesn't mean just using the name of Jesus like a mantra because you tack Jesus' name on it. You can go out and just do whatever you want. You know, there's those folks that believe that. No, when you say, in Jesus' name, can Jesus sign his name on your request? Is it in conformity to his will? That's what we talk about in Jesus' name. But here's what it is not saying. Listen, it is not saying be thankful for every situation. But be thankful for... In every situation. You see the difference? Somebody's diagnosed with cancer. Are you happy for that? Of course not. That's crazy. But in the midst of that suffering. In the midst of that valley. I can be thankful. That he will never leave me nor forsake me. I can be thankful that his promises are true. You see, unthankfulness, Paul said, is a characteristic of the unbeliever. Remember what he would say in Romans chapter 1? He said, although they, they knew God through their conscience and general revelation, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God, nor did they give him thanks. Unthankfulness is a characteristic of an unbeliever. But as believers, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And thankfulness should be the, the hallmark of our life and our lips. It should be that which, as Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our. Lord Jesus Christ, because as Paul would write again in Colossians 2, 7, we are rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What are some things and ways that we can grow in thankfulness? Well, first of all, is deepen your understanding of God's character. That means understanding and growing in God's sovereignty and goodness. One of the reasons why some believers are not thankful is because they really don't understand who God is. Their concept of God is the American popular God that is peddled like detergent on Christian television, right? Their concept of God is not rooted in the Word of God. Their concept of God is an idol of their own thinking. But how do I grow in my understanding and my growing in thankfulness is that I'm growing in God's sovereignty and goodness. My granddaughter many years ago gave me that little homemade coffee mug where I guess they draw on it and kind of put it in some where it burns or what, you know, they make, make it. I don't know. I just got it. But she knew me well enough to know what my favorite verse was or she asked, you know, her grandmother or mom. Romans eight twenty eight. For God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That does not, it's saying that all things that happen in my life are good, but that God works all things together for good according to who he is and his purpose and his plan. And so in that I can be thankful. You know, Joseph is such a great example with that. And we talk a lot about Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. Disappointments, setbacks, again and again. And in that moment, when he could have just revealed, him, when he revealed himself, or, or, or let his brothers, after Jacob died, they were at uh, Genesis 50, and his brothers thought, surely now Joseph, who's revealed himself earlier, is going to seek revenge on their, on their life. It was in that moment... He asks the question, am I not in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's where your theology can save your life. Theology is not some abstract books on your shelf. Theology is what connects your life with truth. And he said, but God meant it for good. What was he acknowledging? That I'm submitting and have submitted to the sovereign goodness of God. And because I do that through every situation and in every situation, knowing that even this valley, that God will work it for good. Another way practically we do this is thankfulness will be our habit. That thankfulness will be our habit when we trust in God. You see, a person who is not a thankful person person who is not a thankful person is a person who is not a trusting in God person you see because if you've not settled your trust in God it's hard to be thankful for what God allows to come in and through your life because you don't really trust him you don't really trust him if we're not thankful, it only reveals that we're not trusting. Children of Israel, think about it. We're so much like them, or they're so much like us, right? God delivered them miraculously from Egypt. I mean, miracles, the plagues, Egyptians uh, thrown into the sea, miraculously brought them through the Red Sea, closed the water on top of the pursuing Egyptian army, mighty deliverance. You would think that at that point, their trust was as solid as solid could be, their trust in the Lord. And just a few days in the wilderness, they couldn't get any water. And what did they do? They grumbled and were mad at Moses and leading them and bringing this into this mess. And how could they let this happen? They weren't thankful. You know why? Because they weren't trustful. Some of you aren't thankful because you don't really trust God with your life and the circumstances. If you're grumbling, you're not trusting. And if you're not trusting, you're just not thankful. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I love church history and two of the mighty, or one of the mighty individuals that God used in church history, John Wesley, his brother Charles, some of the great hymns of the church written by uh, Charles Wesley primarily, but uh, godly Anglicans that in that started a discipleship small group in our language movement and their system and the way that they were organized. Uh, were, were, they were given a nickname because of their method. And they were nicknamed Methodists. Now, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even recognize many of, the, of what's called the Methodist church today. But that's how the founders of Methodism, George Whitfield, was a part of that group at Oxford in England. And 13 years before John Wesley's conversion, he was religious but not converted... You know, that is possible, don't you? To be religious, even be a member at Grace Church. You realize that? And still not be converted? Wesley was religious, but he not, was not converted. And he wrote this, that before 13 years, even before his conversion, John Wesley had a conversation one night with a man that was, uh, It was he was called a porter. Uh, we might would call it him a servant or a custodian or uh, even a... a house uh, waiter uh, individual that helped and worked in the dormitories there where Wesley was in college. And one night with this porter of his college, Wesley was impressed by the Christianity that he saw exhibited in his life. And again, Wesley was religious, but he wasn't a believer. And the man, this Man that was really serving these students of some means and wealth, the man only had a single coat. He had eaten no food that day, and yet Wesley observed what a thankful heart, full of gratitude, that he had towards God. And Wesley wrote that he asked him and said, Sir, you thank God when you have nothing to wear. You thank God when you have nothing to eat. You don't even have a warm bed to lie upon. What else do you thank him for? And the man answered Wesley and said, I thank him that he has given me my life and being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. What are you thankful for? Be thankful That God has given you a heart and a desire. And if you don't have a heart or desire to live for Christ. Then it could be. It could be. That you've never been born again. You're religious. You're moral. But you're lost. And if you. Were to breathe the last breath, your heart was to beat the last beat right now, you would die without Christ, and you would die and be flung into an eternal hell, separated from God. That is the sober reality of not being in Christ. Are you thankful? Are you rejoicing? Are you praying? Are we going to all score hundred at all those? Of course not. But by God's Spirit, by His grace, by the gifts that He has given to us every day, I want to be like Jesus. As the song sings, That we're not going to sing that song, but I want to be like Jesus. I want to grow in His grace. I want to grow in my love for the beauty of Christ. That is over my life. We may have little in this life. Little to show for it. But we who are in Christ. Are the wealthy of the wealthy. Of the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you God. That you've expressed. God your will for our life. Lord that you call your people to. Rejoice, to pray, to be thankful. Lord, sometimes we want to be and dive deep into the profundities of doctrine and theology. And yet, we stumble on all three of these things. To be rejoiceful in the sovereign God who leads, supervises my life. To pray with a sense that God is with me. God is around me. There's no situation, there's no circumstance that I cannot call upon the creator of the universe. Just like Nehemiah in a short moment that I have access through Christ and to be thankful. It's easy to be thankful Lord, when life is going smooth and good, it's different when we come out of the hospital over at Lakeland with a diagnosis. That's going to require more tests. It's going to require some being sent to Tampa to go to Moffitt for them to evaluate. It's hard to be thankful when we didn't get the promotion, when something fell through, when, Lord, we are so easily moved by circumstances. We're so easily swayed by the winds of the changing life. Lord, our brothers and sisters, Lord, on the surface, they're not thankful for the evil that is being Pounded upon them, even as we speak in Ukraine. But Lord, it's been so humbling and amazing to hear believers to say that they know and trust that God is in control. God, could we say that as we were huddling our little children to a bomb shelter, seeing our homes literally destroyed before our eyes, could we, God, even conceive of that? We're not thankful for the evil. But God, through in this life, Jesus, you said we will have trials. We will have tribulations. We will have suffering. And even in that valley of the shadow of death, I can be thankful that your rod and your staff bring comfort, that you're leading me through. God, these dark valleys. And so, Lord Jesus, as we have sung and as we'll close today, how wonderful it is to trust in the sweet name of Jesus. Trusting in His name. Let's stand to our feet as we sing and close this morning and sing this once again. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus.